Welcome to AMDA On The Go, your gateway to expert discussions, journal article reviews, and innovations in post-acute and long-term care. AMDA On The Go is a presentation of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now our host for this special edition of AMDA on the Go, Dr. Sabina von Price Friedman. Hello and good morning, AMDA fans and AMDA staff and AMDA members. Um, we are recording live from Tampa, Drive to Deprescribe. We have a special guest this morning. First of all, can I hear it from you? Can you clap or give me some sign of life here? Okay, thank you. Beautiful. This is Drive to Deprescribe. We are doing our second um, podcast reporting, a wonderful and, uh, program that has shown all of us how to safely uh, relieve our patients from uh, polypharmacy burden. We're delighted today to have a special guest, Dr. Nicole Orr. Dr. Orr is a member of the Greater New England uh, chapter, so welcome in that capacity and an AMDA member. She's assistant professor of medicine in the division of cardiology of Tufts, but more importantly, she is a president of post-acute cardiology care uh, and specializes in high-risk nursing home patients with heart failure. Dr. Nicole is a um, author of uh, several seminal papers in this regard, but today, and we will have them on our website. Today, we are talking about something that has me personally flummoxed uh, for many years, and that's aspirin and clopidogel together apart, when, when to stop, when to start. So we'll be talking about aspirin and clopidogel, when is it too much of a good thing? And uh, we want to also be very clear that this is a conversation with a cardiologist. So there's a whole neurology part to this, but today we're talking to a cardiologist. So Dr. Orr, aspirin, the wonder drug, has had a bit of a problematic time. Tell us about the new updated guidelines from last year on aspirin and primary prevention. Yes, thank you so much for being here. I'm really delighted to join this podcast. Um, so the U.S. Preventative Task Force published its recommendations in um, JAMA um, last year, and it was really an update on how we think about aspirin for primary prevention. We know that aspirin, by virtue of its inhibition of platelet effects, is the mainstay of treatment for secondary prevention, and one would think naturally its role in preventing primary events might be understood. However, um, this new guideline looked at, seven, at 13 randomized um, clinical trials that were um, considering the net benefits of aspirin for antithrombotic prevention, and 14 randomized clinical trials looking at net harm 
for aspirin in secondary prevention. And what they found was that in, sorry, did you? No, I was just gonna say, we all know as geriatricians and nursing home physicians, aspirin in falls is such a high risk right. for us. So right. what did they found about the harm and the benefit? So they found that for younger patients age 40 to 59, there is a small net incremental benefit for the use of primary aspirin for primary prevention. And that's taking into account the clinical harm associated with gastrointestinal bleeding, spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage, and hemorrhagic stroke. For patients 60 to 70, to 69, there was an equilibration of the effect of net harm and net benefit. And they found that in patients 70 to 79, the risk and the harm of bleeding outweighed the net clinical benefit. And we understand that aspirin benefit accrues over time, so the longer you're on it as a younger patient, the more benefit you will get, but that incremental benefit decreases with increasing age, such that the overall net benefit effect is really not seen in patients over 75. Well, that is certainly important information for us um, because many of our patients, but not all, are over age 75. And I might just add that for in that cohort of patients 40 to 59, those are patients who have, by a risk assessment, a 10-year atherosclerotic cardiovascular risk of 10% or more. And the risk is even the the benefit of aspirin is even higher in patients with higher clinical risk. So if you have a younger patient in a skilled nursing facility, which does happen, and yes. they have uncontrolled lipids, uncontrolled hypertension, and a very high atherosclerotic cardiovascular risk score determined by the ACC-AHA risk assessment co uh, scoring, um, those patients would benefit from primary prevention. What's your favorite risk calculator? What's your favorite app? The only one that's been validated is that by the ASCVD risk calculator by ACC and AHA. And I can show you a picture on the website, but it's the only one on validated internationally. Okay, so um, if we're not sure, we can do, for our younger patient, we can do a risk calculation. So how, does, how do these guidelines then affect our patient population in PALTC? And let me tell you a little bit where I may have a cause for pause. Let's say I have an 85-year-old patient who is not at risk for fall, maybe they're bedridden, and, um, but I am pretty clear that they could have coronary artery disease. It's just not diagnosed because they are so old. Uh, should I remove them? Uh, from, uh, should I remove the aspirin, and if so, how? Yeah, so again, this is a really important question, and we're really balancing the preventive effects of antithrombotic effect and the risk of platelet, uh, and, and diminishing the platelet thromboxane pathway for increasing bleeding risk. And so the way that you think about this is based on how I think of it as age and risk. And so in patients who are greater than 75, who are um, at very high risk, meaning uncontrolled LDL, cholesterol, possibly high calcium score, difficult to control antihypertensive therapy, maybe statin intolerance, who are not frail <clears throat> and who have very minimal bleeding risk, 
the benefit of continuing aspirin therapy is reasonable, and that comes with a shared decision-making um, pathway. And for those patients who might say, my, my concern about an MI, um, a stroke, is very high, I have a strong family history, I've seen my father disabled, I have no bleeding risk, they might opt in favor of maintain, maintaining antiplatelet therapy. However, those with a, their concerns and their preferences are to avoid GI bleeding, those are patients that you might want to deprescribe. It's interesting to know that the patient the risk is not a one-time number. So risk is modifiable, and as cardiologists, we are often following risk scores. So someone's risk, you know, four years ago before they were under treatment for secondary prevention is a lot higher. But once we've actually modified their risk, they have a new risk assessment. The caveat to that is that if patients, and this is complicated, but if patients are on aspirin for primary prevention at age 67 um, or 60, that, and they've been on it for 10 years, that means that at age 50, because age is a risk predictor, their risk was even higher because age was not part of the risk equation. So they were on aspirin with a very high risk for uncontrolled factors, and that means when they get to 60, the benefit they had over those 10 years is substantial, and maybe those patients should continue aspirin because they've been on it because their original risk was high, and the longer the duration, the better the benefit. Okay, so who should we discontinue aspirin? I say patients greater than 75 with low cardiovascular risk who've been maintained on it from antiquated guidelines. Okay, so patients greater than 75. Who has those patients with um, greater than 75 and low cardiovascular risk? Okay, some tentative hands, not too, um, t uh, not overwhelming response here. Um, Let's, uh, so if you don't know, what, what would you recommend? If we are thinking, well, maybe we can discontinue, what would you recommend us doing if we are unsure? I think any, any patient with a high bleeding risk, so a history of GI bleed, peptic ulcer disease, thrombocytopenia, on anticoagulation, requiring chronic steroid therapy, requiring NSAID, so any of these increased bleeding risks, with even a 10% risk or, <clears throat> or lower, the benefit of primary prevention is probably minimal. And I would discontinue aspirin in those patients. Okay, I think those are pretty clear words um, that we can go home with. So that would be one action item. Let's pivot to aspirin itself. Is there ever a reason to give 325 milligram of aspirin instead of 81? Because if we don't discontinue it, maybe we can lower the dose. Yeah, so that's a great question. And actually something that we've sort of fallen out of favor using aspirin 325, but the data is relatively recent. So, um, Aspirin-325 is still used in patients with acute occlusive coronary artery disease for um, an acute event as a loading dose. We sometimes will see 325 BID in DVD prophylaxis, although the data supporting that is not really robust. And the 2001 AHA, uh, American Stroke Association, still include aspirin-325 as a possible dose for secondary prevention of non-cardioembolic stroke. But in the cardiovascular literature, 
literature, really we look at the um, more recent adaptable trial, which is published in JAMA in 2020, and that randomized patients um, with stable ischemic heart disease to aspirin 81 or aspirin 325 milligrams for two years, 26 months, and they found that aspirin 81 was as effective um, in reducing the composite outcome of death or hospitalization for myocardial infarction or stroke and had a reduced bleeding risk. So for our patients with stable ischemic heart disease, there's really no, um, it's, there, there's really no compelling indication to continue the aspirin 325 dose. Well, this is our second take-home point. You know, there's really no reason to give uh, aspirin 325 unless it's an acute MI or for thromboembolic prophylaxis. So let's go and talk to our other um, uh, favorite drug, and let's uh, talk about our other favorite drug, and that's clopidogrel, um, dual antiplatelet therapy. You know, we all know our patients with a large ecchymosis and, um, and the horrible vascular disease and, and recent MIs and all of that, but then, Time flies, and um, <laughs> patients are post their hospitalization. For how long should we consider dual antiplatelet therapy in cardiac disease and status post stent? What are the latest data on that? Great question, and I will have you know that I just returned from the American College of Cardiology Conference in New Orleans on Tuesday, and there were multiple sessions about this, so it is a very hot topic. It is still evolving, and um, it's very exciting. So, um, and it's just an, it's constantly, it's a dynamic, um, it's a dynamic field. So we know that dual antiplatelet therapy with aspirin and P2Y12 receptor antagonists remain the cornerstone of therapy for prevention of thrombotic complications after PCI. We've sort of all been very familiar with the 2016 guidelines um, for coronary revascularization. Um, and those guidelines recommended that for patients with stable ischemic heart disease who underwent primary uh, PCI, were treated with dual antiplatelet therapy and the duration depended on the type of stent implanted. So a bare metal stent required at least one month of dual antiplatelet therapy. A drug-eluting stent required at least six months of dual antiplatelet therapy. And then um, single antiplatelet therapy was continued for one, uh, for one year or indefinitely. For patients with, not with stable ischemic heart disease, but who presented with an acute coronary syndrome, non-ST elevation MI, ST elevation MI, or unstable angina, those guidelines increase the duration of dual antiplatelet therapy because of the particularly thrombotic milieu of an okay. acute coronary presentation. And those patients, regardless, were continued on dual antiplatelet therapy for one year, regardless of whether they were treated medically or with a coronary intervention with a, a stent. So what I'm hearing from this is, you know, those patients who are on dual antiplatelet therapy and you may have reached the one or six month um, uh, time timeline, probably would be good to circle back to the cardiologist and ask for a recommendation when that can be discontinued. Would you agree with that? Yes, especially in light of the fact that those guidelines, which we've all grown familiar with, were just recently updated in 2021. And really there is an emphasis on shortening the duration of dual antiplatelet therapy, <clears throat> such that now patients with stable ischemic heart disease 
um, are stratified by their bleeding risk and their ischemia risk. And so patients with um, stable ischemic heart disease who undergo stenting, we're really trying to decrease the um, timing of dual antiplatelet therapy to six months and those with a high bleeding risk to three months. Okay. And in patients with acute coronary syndrome to 12 months, but with a high bleeding risk to less than six months. So we're shifting, and the data, which includes five randomized clinical trials, um, to be incorporated in the 2021 guidelines is really showing the safety of um, uh, single antiplatelet therapy after six months. Okay. After six months, you can go to aspirin and then only aspirin 81 milligram if you've checked with a cardiologist. That's what I'm hearing uh, hearing you say. I think, I think yes. It's, I think the, the pearls that I would give you in post-acute care are that at 12 months after stent, barring the fact that it was a very complicated intervention with very complex anatomy and things like bifurcation stents, most times you can discontinue um, an antiplatelet agent and just keep one. And there is still a debate whether that that is continuing aspirin or, or clopidogrel. Oh. There is, um, the Augustus trial actually looked at continuation of P2I12 monotherapy. And so that still requires more data to figure out. But we might see that patients stay on P2I12 inhibitor therapy rather than aspirin alone. The data is still um, being looked at. But after 12 months, it's safe to deprescribe one agent. And in patients with high bleeding risk, it's probably safe, it is safe to deprescribe after six months. If you don't know the indication, which is very hard in SNFs because we just see CAD status post PCI, we don't know if it's an acute coronary syndrome, we don't know the anatomy, I would ask the cardiologist. Okay, our friends the cardiologist. All right, so now we're going to go to a yet a different topic that we had actually a presentation of an article about, and um, but we, we're going to talk about it anyways, and that's DOAX plus aspirin. Um, when should we use this combination, and when can we discontinue the aspirin? I mean, obviously, we mostly use DOAX for atrial fibrillation. So atrial fibrillation plus coronary artery disease um, do we have to do both a DOAC and aspirin, or um, can we get rid of the aspirin? Yeah, I think this we have data on this. It's not robust, but I think this is still an area that is somewhat dependent on clinician preference. But in general, we know that because of inhibition of the thrombotic pathway, while it's not as effective in reducing thrombotic events that uh, require antiplatelet inhibition, there is still some benefit in inhibiting the thrombotic cascade with um, DOAX. And so the 2020 ACC expert consensus decision pathway for anticoagulation and antiplatelet therapy in patients with AFib or venous thromboembolism undergoing PCI um, looked at um, um, a, a meta-analysis and the most recent trial data. And um, one seminal trial, the uh, a FIRE trial, looked at um, patients with AFib and stable ischemic heart disease 
who were treated with rivaroxaban and aspirin or rivaroxaban alone. And they found no difference in the secondary endpoint of myocardial infarction, thromboembotic cerebral vascular events, death or hospitalization for MI. And so that trial really helped inform us that patients with AFib who undergo PCI, after a year of treatment for their acute event, these are patients with stable ischemic heart disease, it is safe, this is sort of hard to conceptualize, but it is safe to discontinue antiplatelet therapy and just keep them on um, DOAC alone. Okay, so I think that's, that's important um, information. And I think what we are seeing here, you know, when we started out in D2D, it was a little bit more of a slam dunk situation, you know, no low modal, no Reglan. And I think what we are, where we are going to now in our D2D journey, we're going to what I would call thoughtful deprescribing. Um, I think we should consider deprescribing um, aspirin or um, clopidogrel in specific situation. As a cardiologist, what is your top deprescribing priority? Can I give a case present a, a, a case synopsis? I saw a patient sure. very brief. Sure. I saw a patient um, on triple therapy, which is really the main stay of any time I see that. That is my priority to deprescribe. And I think in the skilled nursing facility setting where you're not necessarily taking ownership of the patients or understanding the indications for therapy, um, there is sort of an inertia to continue. I saw a patient just two weeks ago who was on triple therapy with aspirin, um, DOAC, and clopidogrel. And the clopidogrel was indicated for peripheral artery stenting. And the patient had had an amputation of that area um, a year before. So the stent was no longer even in the body. So I think one thing that I really emphasize is understanding the indications for triple therapy. But in general, we don't continue triple therapy for more than a month and optimally for um, about a week in patients with acute coronary syndrome um, with um, in atrial fibrillation. Other pearls I would think of is if you can to, because we know the increased bleeding um, safety profile with DOAX over Coumadin, to use the sniff stay in a monitored setting where you can monitor labs to transition from vitamin K antagonists to um, direct oral anticoagulation. Um, I oftentimes will decrease aspirin 325 to 81. Um, I would recommend if you have a patient that requires dual antithrombotic therapy with a DOAC or an a PTY12 inhibitor, just keep in mind that of the three available PTY12 inhibitors, ticagrelor, prasugrel, and clopidogrel, clopidogrel has the lower, lowest risk of bleeding. So potentially switching to that if they require both. Um, and then don't, this is not a deprescribing, but don't underdose DOAX because if you have an older patient who is not underweight and who has normal renal function, you're giving them an increased risk of bleeding without uh, benefit of stroke prevention. Um, and discontinuing therapies too soon is often sometimes something you wanna prevent. The last point is that if you decrease aspirin or um, P 
PPP2Y12 inhibitor prematurely because of a perceived increased bleeding risk, and um, um, and then the patient or and then the patient actually um, has an event. That is something that you you just want to be cautious about deprescribing um, too soon. Yes, and I think this is a perfect segue into a comment about deprescribing. We're calling it deprescribing, but we really should be calling it medication optimization. So should we want to give medications for the right reasons and at the right time. Thank you so much, Dr. Orr, for giving us your complex uh, insights. I think triple therapy is out after one week to one month, over age 75, aspirin, um, for primary prevention, probably out, unless um, there are very compelling reasons um, to continue to give it. Um, if you continue aspirin, go down to 81 milligram um, if you haven't done that. And uh, stable ischemic heart disease and atrial fibrillation, you probably can discontinue the aspirin at that time. Those are the pearls that I took uh, away, and I also took away that um, we should deprescribe, we should optimize our meds, but we need to do it thoughtfully. Deprescribing is hard, and that's why we'll continue our drive to deprescribe with ongoing updated information uh, quarterly. And all that's left to do is give Dr. Orr a big hand, please, for a very nice uh, information. Thank you so much. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast.